Lord, we thank you so much for the word that you've given us, your word, God, so powerful. I pray that you would speak to us through this text, this amazing encounter um, that these three disciples had with you, the the privilege it was to see these things. Lord, I, I can only imagine. But God, you have it you have it written down for us to look back to and for us to learn from. So I pray that we would do just that, that your spirit would teach us, that you would enlighten the eyes of our understanding. You would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation, and we would see your truths in the scripture and be able to apply some of these things uh, to our everyday lives. So we love you. We ask that you would bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. If you recall, um, last couple weeks, uh, we have talked about a couple different topics going through the gospel of Matthew. And if you remember, Jesus and the disciples are in an area called Caesarea Philippi which was a place known for idol worship and temples. And the God of Pan was believed to be birthed there. And we talked about all this different idolatry that was going on there. And that's where Jesus brings the disciples to get this specific truth across. And he poses the question that we all must ask ourselves. Who do you say the Son of Man is? Who was Jesus? And we discussed about how that is the most important question any not just believer, but anyone can ask themselves. Because if we believe he's someone less than what he said he was, then it's drastically going to affect our behavior in a negative way. And then what does Jesus do after he reveals his nature that he is not just the son of God, but what that means that he's actually God in the flesh. Then he tells the disciples, yes, this is who I am and this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. Ultimately, I'm going to die only to resurrect from the dead. And then after he tells the disciples who he is, what he's going to do, then he charges them because this is who I am. And because this is what I'm going to do, you need to follow me in the same way. And that's what he just told the disciples. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Last week, we talked about how Jesus is the way and we're to follow his way, follow in his footsteps. Now, in this text, he's going to do something really cool. He's going to do a special favor, if you will, for three specific disciples, Peter, James, and John, and he's going to reveal himself. He's going to reveal his glory. It's called the transfiguration. I'm sure it gave the disciples so much hope and confidence to know that, yes, this is what Jesus is going to do. He's going to die. Yeah, he'll raise again, He told us we need to follow in his footsteps, but there is hope. And what the transfiguration does for these three disciples is it gives them hope. Hope in the Bible is a confident expectation. Because they witnessed this thing, they can have a confident expectation that he is going to fulfill everything that he said he was going to fulfill. Now, what Jesus is doing here in revealing his transfiguration is really revealing his glory, which brings me to the title of this teaching, the glory of Jesus, the glory of Jesus. Now, um, let's get a little context because this is important. If you would look back with me at Matthew chapter 16, verse 28 says, assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. We talked about how there's a lot of debate about this verse and many believe the second coming already happened. But when you look at scriptures and and what it said about the second coming, uh, you really have to make things uh, say what it's really not saying and over spiritualize certain verses. And and it really gets us away of the uh, away from the historical events that actually occurred. Um, 
when they say that the second coming happened because in all reality, it hasn't happened because we haven't seen it completely fulfilled. But what Jesus is saying in this verse, he's going to fulfill in the next chapter. He's going to fulfill in Matthew chapter 17. They're going to see him in his glory. They're going to see him as he rules and reigns in his kingdom. So let's look at it. Matthew chapter 17, verse 1, says, <clears throat> this is a shorter one, I'll read, the whole, I'll read the whole section for you. Matthew 17, verse 1 to 13. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up high on a mountain, on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking to him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and, and said, Arise and do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And the disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Okay, now that we got the full story and what happened, let's understand it on a deeper level. Break some of these verses down. If you would pick it back up in Matthew chapter 17, it says, now after six days. Okay, when you look at Luke in uh, his account of this story, Luke accounts of the transfiguration in Luke chapter 9, and Mark talks about it in Mark chapter 9, okay? So we see it in the synoptic gospels, the same story with different details, and we'll pull a couple of those details from Luke, but when you look at Luke's gospel, it says about eight days had passed, and in Matthew's gospel, it says six days. Is that a contradiction? It's not a contradiction. We have to always look at culture to understand context before we jump to a conclusion. Oh, this contradicts this. This said eight. This said six. Because when you understand Greek culture, they had a phrase that about eight days meant about a week. It wasn't exactly eight days. Matthew's telling us it was exactly six days. The Greeks, they had a phrase, like if we say about seven days is about a week, they would say about eight days, about a week. And we understand from Matthew's gospel, it wasn't a full eight days. It was about a week, which was six days. If that causes you to stumble, look at the culture. It uh, will bring the text to light and help you understand a little better. Now look, after six days... Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. So Jesus, he doesn't take all 12 of the disciples, he only takes three. And who are those three? Peter, James, and John. We see throughout scripture that Jesus had a unique relationship with these three. And then the two, Peter and John, and then John, his beloved. Okay, now we can look at this and be like, wait a minute, Jesus, why didn't you take all the other disciples? Why did you only take these three? Why did you have these special encounters only with these three specific disciples and not all of them? Now, some will say, well, you know, Peter, James and John, they were the real deal. They were the strongest leaders. They were the ones that had it all together. And that's why Jesus entrusted to them more because he needed to make them these special leaders. But when we compare scripture to scripture and we understand the heart of the Lord, 
I personally believe it was the opposite. I believe Peter, James, and John were the weakest. I believe that they were the ones that struggled with faith the most. Why do I believe that? Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 and 29, he tells us what kind of people God chooses. And you know what the criteria for someone that God chooses is? That they're weak, that they're abased, that they're despised. These are the people that God chooses. So when we look at the scripture and see all this intimate time that he spent with these three, I think they needed to see this because they wouldn't have endured the trials that came to them that were going to come to them if they didn't see the resurrection before the resurrection uh, in, in a way. So I believe personally, it doesn't say it in scripture, but comparing scripture to scripture, I believe it's because they struggled the most with faith. We see Peter, he was a mess. James and John, they weren't much better. So he takes these three up the mountain for this specific purpose, but he takes them up a high mountain. In Luke chapter 9, verse 28 Uh, It says this, you don't have to flip there. It it says, transfiguration, they went up to the mountain to pray, okay? So they're specifically going up this mountain to pray. Now we know Jesus, we read the story, he has other motivations and things he wants to teach them, but the purpose of them initially going up this mountain is to pray. Now which mountain are we discussing here? The Bible doesn't clarify, so we can't be sure. But there's three different mountains that most scholars debate about that, 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 that where the transfigure happened, it was likely, uh, some say Mount Tabor. Now, Mount Tabor is 1900 feet, and Matthew describes this mountain as a high mountain. We live in the mountains, 1900 feet isn't a very high mountain, right? Probably wouldn't describe 1900 feet as a high mountain. Okay, so probably not Mount Tabor. And uh, besides that, it wasn't on the way from Caesarea Philippi where they were to Capernaum where they're, they'll be going. We'll talk about that next week. Okay, so it's not that way. So they would have to go out of the way to go to this specific mountain. Probably not that mountain. Some say Mount Hermon. Now, Mount Hermon was 9,300 feet high. That is a really high mountain, right? That's what? What are we, 6,000 right here? Yeah? Come on, 3,000 more feet, that's super high. The disciples, we'll talk about later, they fall asleep. Probably aren't sleeping 9,300 feet when it's that cold outside. That's not likely the the best mountain or the most accurate idea of which mountain this was. There's a mountain called Mount Moran, okay? It's 3,900 feet, okay? I would consider pretty high for me, Florida boy. Um, sea level, you know, anything above that's high for me. The greatest mountains in, in Florida. You know we have mountains, right? Do you guys know that? They're trash heaps, but, but they're mountains to us. But that's the truth. Highest mountains in Florida. Trash mountains. So this mountain, uh, Mount Moran, it's 3,900 feet and it is on the way from Caesarea Philippi to Capernaum. So most would suggest that that's likely the mountain that the transfiguration happened, regardless of which mountain it is. We'll never know for sure. Consider what it takes to make your way up a mountain. It's difficult, right? Anybody ever mountain climb? A little bit here and there, something like that. Climbing up mountains is difficult. He leads them up a mountain. Now, in El Salvador, where I used to live on the property, right by the property, there's this volcano, okay? And it's not active, thank God. Uh, and actually, this volcano is really cool. It's, it's huge, and it's filled with water. Jacques Cousteau actually went into the water with his, one of his submarines trying to find like where all this goes, and he couldn't figure it out. There's so many different caves and crevices. It was, it's enormous, Okay, and we would occasionally take uh, students down this volcano. There was a, a walkway, if you want to call it that, not really much of a walking path, uh, kind of more like a climbing path. Okay, most of it was walking, but you had to use your hands somewhat. And this was about 1,600 feet from the top to the bottom. Now, going down, not too bad. Going up, another story. Okay, this was so steep, and I remember kind of racing one of my friends trying to get up this mountain, and it's like, treacherous 
I, I, I literally felt like I was going to have a heart attack. I literally felt like I was going to die. The only thing that kept me going was pride, trying to, trying to beat my friend to get up this mountain. But by the time I got up this mountain, I was wiped. I was so tired. I didn't want to do anything the rest of the day. Jesus, he leads these disciples up the mountain. Later, we'll see that they're weary, but it's difficult. It's difficult climbing up mountains. It's difficult to make your way up a mountain. Mountains, they're not easy. And we see the Lord, Jesus, he puts mountains in our lives sometimes. Those mountains come in the form of different obstacles. Sometimes those obstacles are trials or tribulations. And we can look at those mountain experiences, those trials or tribulations or tragedies, whatever it might be specifically, and we can see, God, why would you, why would you lead me up this mountain? Why would you make me walk through this difficult time? I literally felt like I was going to die. I literally feel like I want to die. This is such a hard time in my life. Why would you put this mountain in my way? Sometimes we look at a mountain in our life, an obstacle in our life, and we think, man, God's trying to prevent me from experiencing happiness. But actually, as we'll see, mountains are an avenue to experience a deeper level of happiness. And he has to put those obstacles in our path so that we would climb them, so that we would overcome them and we experience things that we never would experience if we remained down in the valley. See, Peter, James, and John, they followed Jesus up this mountain. And Jesus, he had something specific that he wanted to reveal to these disciples. It's verse 2. And he was transfigured. He was transfigured. What does that mean? Well, the Greek word is metamorpho, okay? Uh, Where we get metamorphosis from. He's literally transformed. It's like the same word that you would use with a, a caterpillar going into a cocoon and turning it into a butterfly. It's that kind of transformation we're talking about. Jesus, no longer in his caterpillar flesh, he reveals his glory. He reveals, in a sense, his resurrected form, his transfigured form. This is the reason he led him up the mountain. He led him up the mountain to reveal to them his glory, which brings me to the first of five points. Jesus leads us up mountains to show us his glory. Jesus leads us up mountains to show us his glory. Now, I'm not just pulling this from this text. We see Jesus do this. Sorry, God the Father do this in previous texts. If we look way back in Exodus chapter 33, if you flip with me there, in Exodus chapter 33, we see God do something very similar with Moses. In Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, Moses has this encounter with God, and he asks God, please show me your glory, verse 18. Then God says in verse 19, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. Put that in like a mental side note of your head, okay, if you have that. Okay, so he says, show me your glory. He says, I'll show you my goodness. I'll reveal to you my name. And then look what happens in Exodus chapter 34, verse 2. Same context, part of the same story. It says, so be ready in the morning. This is God speaking to Moses. So be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. What did God ask Moses to do? He asked him to climb up this mountain, get up this mountain, and then I will reveal to you my glory. See, God, it's not just his intention to reveal to Moses his glory, nor is it Jesus's intention just to reveal the disciple to the disciples his glory. He has another purpose in this. Why would he make them climb up a mountain? Couldn't he just reveal his glory down the mountain? Yeah, he could have done that, but he didn't. And he didn't for a specific purpose. He doesn't want to just reveal something to them. He wants to produce something in them. That's why God calls us sometimes to climb mountains. It's not just something he wants us to, wants to show us. It's something he wants to produce in us. And generally, 
what he's trying to produce in us is diligence. It's Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. It says this, that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He rewards those that diligently seek him. So he asks them to climb up this mountain to practice a faith that diligently seeks the Lord. And through that practice of faith, through that diligence, he rewards them with his glory. That's exactly what he does to the disciples. If they stay down the mountain, they ain't seeing this. They go up the mountain and they're able to see, witness the transfiguration. Jesus, he's transfigured. He's glorified. Now, in the Bible, um, there's different meanings of the word glory or glorify, okay? To, to be um, general, we won't get into it, to it too much. When the Bible's talking about God's glory, most of the time, primarily, it's talking about this amazing light, the glory of God. It's so bright, it shines, the Father of lights manifesting his light, This is what the glory of God generally refers to in the Bible. But there's also a practical understanding. Remember, I told you to take that side note in your mind. In Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, Moses asked God, please show me your glory. And then in verse 19, he says, I will make my goodness pass before you. Why? Because God's glory is his goodness. And then look what he says. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will proclaim my name. Then look at Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. This is where he proclaims the name of the Lord. He says, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. What's that? That's character. God's glory is his goodness. His goodness is his name and his name is his character. God's glory is his character. This is the practical understanding of God's glory. This is how we glorify God. To glorify God, it means to think or meditate on. That's one of the meanings of it. We're thinking about God's goodness. We're thinking about his character. And when we're meditating on that, we're more likely to live it out. So we see the glory of God. Yes, it's his character, but also the glory that God is speaking of here in the transfiguration is actual that, that, that visible glory that they're witnessing this, this bright, bright Light, the transfiguration, Jesus' glory, the, these bright lights that the disciples can probably hardly look at. You know what's interesting here, though? We read this story, and honestly, of all the scriptures that I've read, the, the entire Bible, out of every story in the entire Bible, this is probably the event that I would like to be at the most. It's up there. Okay, there's some other ones. We crossed the Red Sea, a couple Lazarus being raised from the dead. But the transfiguration, like that's up there on the top of the list. You transfigured Jesus, you got Moses, you got Elijah. That must have been a spectacular scene when we look at that with human eyes. But we miss the fact that the miracle wasn't that Jesus revealed his glory. The miracle was that he concealed it for so long. That he remained in human flesh. He was always glorified. The miracle was that he came as a man. That's the miracle. And that's what's so amazing. He hid this glory from them for so long. And now in this moment, he reveals his true nature. He reveals who he truly is. And what he's revealing, his glory, yes, it's light. Because Jesus, he says in John chapter 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. He's always been the light of the world. Now he's just revealing who he truly is, disguised by the flesh. Look what it says here. He was transfigured. Before them, his face shone like the sun. Okay? When you read that, I don't think we always like really capture what that means. Like, well, oh, his face shines like the sun, so it's probably like this light. That's shining here, this like, no, his face shined like the sun, like the sun. Like, think about it. How, how many times have you looked at the sun in your life? And for how long? Not very long, right? It's so bright. You can, you can't look at the sun very long or you'll go blind. That's the light that they're comparing it to. They're saying his face wasn't like a bright, his face was like the sun. Imagine being this close to the sun. Obviously you would die in an instant. Okay. But he's talking about the brightness, not the heat. Okay. That's 
the brightness that is being described here. His face was like the sun. You know, it's really interesting. Paul, he talks about the moment that the Lord revealed himself to him in Acts chapter 22. If you look, look, uh, there with me real quick. Acts chapter 22, Paul's talking about his testimony, okay? Acts chapter 22, verse 6, it says, Now it happened, as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Look back at verse 6. What time of day is this? Noon. What do we know about noon? The sun's at its peak, right? The sun's at its brightest. And Paul's saying, regardless of the fact that it was noon, Jesus came to me in the light, and that light, in a way, was brighter than the sun. I didn't notice the sun compared to the sun, compared to the sun of God in his glory, in his spectacular light, despite the fact that it was noon, the light that I saw was the light of the sun. So Jesus, his glory is even brighter than the sun. Matthew chapter 17, not only is his face shining like the sun, it says his clothes became as white as the light. His clothes became as white as the light. Now, we see a lot of different scriptures about uh, the righteous robe of, of Jesus Christ. And there's some similar uh, passages in Daniel and Revelation. We'll get there in a second that describe what Jesus looks like, like in his transfigured state. Now, I don't know if it was actually his clothes that are glorified too, or if he's just shining so bright that his clothes are shining with it, that his, his body is shining through the clothes. I don't know for sure. If it's glorified clothes, I want some. Those sound pretty cool, right? It's like if I was wearing like a glorified shirt, get way too much attention. I'm only kidding about that. But his clothes, they're, they're shining white as light. I want to give a, a, another example in Revelation chapter 1, if you'd flip with me there, of, of the transfigured Christ and how John describes him. If you remember or know about Revelation, John, he was boiled alive in oil. He was exiled to Patmos to die. And this, in the midst of his suffering, is when Jesus comes to him and reveals himself to him. And look at how he describes Jesus. Jesus speaks to him. And then in verse 13 of Revelation chapter 1, it says, And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden uh, band, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters." And he had in his right hand seven stars out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. John gives us a little more color. He gives us a little more detail. This is very likely the same image that Peter, James, and John are seeing here in Matthew chapter 17. We just get a little more detail and there's a lot of fascinating uh things and, and symbolism in what Jesus uh, appeared to him as. But we don't have time to get into that. If you look at Matthew chapter 17, verse 3, And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Who are they talking to? Not the disciples. Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus. But how did the disciples know that this was Moses and Elijah? It doesn't say they had a name tag. Doesn't say they had a cardboard sign that says, I'm Moses and I'm Elijah. Okay. Doesn't say that the Lord told them that this was Moses and Elijah. The most likely explanation of how they knew it was Moses and Elijah. Remember, Moses and Elijah hadn't been around for a long time. Okay. But they know that it's them. Why? They likely spiritually discerned this. They were given a, a knowledge of Moses and Elijah and who they were without ever have 
uh, they never met them before. Now, many scholars and theologians will take this and other scriptures uh, to help us understand that there's a likely reality that when we go to heaven, we're going to know who people are. People from the past, we'll know John, we'll know James, we'll know Peter. We're not going to have a hard time recognizing Jesus. I, I promise you that, okay? But, but we're going to see people from the past and we're going to know who they are. Why? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it says this. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. They were given a certain level of knowledge that was beyond their the natural man. The Lord revealed this to them. They knew that it was Moses and Elijah. Now, why are Moses and Elijah here? Okay, there's lots of different thoughts and there's some really great um, practical understanding of why it would be Moses and Elijah. I'm going to make three little sub points. Moses and Elijah represent those who are caught up to God. What do I mean? Well, Moses, if you look at Jude verse nine in Jude verse nine, we see this fascinating story of this battle over the body of Moses. And look what Jude tells us in Jude verse nine. It says, yet Michael, the archangel in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dare not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So we see after the death of Moses, there was literally this little battle between Mark, uh, sorry, Michael, the archangel and the devil fighting over the body of Moses and the marking, uh, the Mark angel, I'm mixing them together. <laughs> Michael, the archangel rebuked the devil and took the body of Moses to be caught up with the Lord. See, Moses, he represents those who have died and will be caught up to the Lord at the rapture. What about Elijah? Elijah, he never died. Look at Second Kings chapter 2. Second Kings chapter 2, verse 11 says, then it happened as they continued on and talked that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Hear that? Elijah was caught up to heaven. He never faced death. God just caught him up. It's a picture of the rapture. If the rapture happens before we die, like Elijah, we'll just be caught up to heaven right? But Moses, he represents those that have died and will be caught up to heaven at the rapture. Let me clarify. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Okay, we know that. So if you die before the rapture, you're still going to be with the Lord, but in spirit. When the rapture happens, then you'll get your transfigured, glorified body, the same type of body that Jesus is revealing that to them now. So Moses and Elijah, they represent both the types of people that will be caught up to the Lord, those that will be caught up at the rapture before death and those that will be caught up to the rapture after death. First Thessalonians chapter four, uh, verses 13 to 18. Um, that that's where we get one of the main verses. There's a bunch of verses, but where we get uh, the doctrine of the rapture and understand that. So if you want to look at that at another time, uh, feel free to. Okay, Moses and Elijah, not only do they represent those who are caught up, they represent something else specifically. Moses, he's a representation of the law. Moses represents the law because God gave the law to Moses to give to the people. Elijah is what? He's a prophet, okay? So Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. And who else is there? Jesus. He represents what? Not only God, but the New Testament. See, the law and the prophets really sum up the Old Testament. Jesus is a representation of grace, the new covenant that would come after the gospel was fulfilled. And those three together really sum up the entirety of the word of God that we have here today. As well, some believe that Moses and Elijah will be the two witnesses that are 
talked about in Revelation chapter 11. Okay, there's these two witnesses, these two prophets, about halfway through the tribulation, they start preaching the gospel to people. A lot of people aren't receiving them, so they're breathing fire on them and killing them. It's a really interesting story. I recommend you look at it. Revelation chapter 11. Um, but we see these two witnesses, they end up die, dying, they end up being risen from the dead, and some believe that this is Elijah and Moses. We'll talk about this a little bit more when we get to the end of the teaching. Consider this. Like, I want you to visually imagine, okay? Jesus is transfigured in all of his glory, face shining like the sun. Moses, Elijah are there. And guess what the disciples are doing? They're sleeping. If you look at Luke chapter 9, he talks about this story, the transfiguration. In Luke chapter 9, verse 32, says, but Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep. Same story. And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with them. So they're asleep. They wake up and then they see this thing. We don't know how long it had been happening, if it was simultaneous, but because they were sleeping, they almost missed out on the glory of God. Imagine if they slept through this. Second point. Behold his glory, don't sleep through it. Behold his glory, don't sleep through it. Perhaps the most spectacular event that any three people have ever witnessed next to the resurrection, they fell asleep. Now, we can have some sympathy here, right? We can have some understanding. We talked about how difficult it is to climb up a mountain. Not only did they climb up this mountain, think about the lifestyle they're living You know, they fed the 5,000, they fed the 4,000, they're constantly taking care of thousands of people, they're engaging in ministry, they're trying to keep up with Jesus constantly, they're tired constantly. I can only imagine that after climbing a mountain with all the things that they were doing before that, that they were pretty tired, that they wanted to sleep, but that sleepiness almost robbed them from witnessing the glory of God. Have you allowed sleepiness in your life to rob you from the glory of God? What do I mean? Has there been something the Lord had asked you to do? Maybe it was climb a mountain. Maybe it was as simple as wake up and pray. Maybe it was as simple as, hey, share your faith with that person. They're struggling. Hey, hey, pray for that person. They're, I know you don't know them, but, but they're going through it. You, you, you need to pray for that person. Has there been something that the Lord had asked you to do? Maybe it was get involved with a ministry or be part of a home group or even start your own ministry. I don't know, but something that God asked you to do and you are too tired to do it. Imagine what you missed out on. Who knows? If the disciples, if they slept through this, probably wouldn't be reading about it. We can allow weariness, we can allow sleepiness to rob us of the glory of God. See, Jesus, he asks us to engage in spiritual disciplines such as prayer, such as reading the word, such as fasting, such as fellowship, such as all these different things, not to punish us, but to reveal to us his glory. And if we don't wake up, we won't witness it. See, many times in my life, I'm far from perfect, okay? Many times in my life, I've been very tired and weary and not wanted to engage in ministry, okay? I get texts. I got one one guy, he won't call me or text me before 1 a.m. That's the only time that he'll call me in the middle of the night. He's going through a lot of stuff. I don't always want to pick up the phone. I don't always want to text him back. But most of the time I'm sleeping. But there was a time, <laughs> there was a time not that long ago where I got to talk to him, at, I happened to be awake at, at, after one. That's so rare. That was a miracle in and of itself. And and I called him back, and he was contemplating killing himself. And he wanted to kill himself right then. And he had the means to do it right then. And he's like, I just need to talk to you. Please talk to me. I, he was talking about 
demons and all these different things that he had been engaging in that he shouldn't have. And I was able to talk with him through this. And sure enough, he didn't end up killing himself. Now, I don't think that 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 had anything to do with like me and some power I brought to the table. It just meant engaging in a spiritual thing. When I was weary, when I was tired and the glory that was revealed in that moment was a a guy that's life was saved. But when we choose not to engage spiritually, imagine what we're missing out on. Thankfully, as we just read, the disciples woke up, okay? They woke up and not only did they wake up, they remembered this very well. In fact, they write about it. If you look at 2 Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, Peter says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not saying this isn't just like some fable that we heard about, okay? He says, But were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw this. For, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him through the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. He's talking specifically about the transfiguration. And he's saying, hey, this isn't some fable that we just made up. We saw this. We witnessed the glorified king. This is something that we witnessed because we were awake. They woke up, though they were sleepy. John, he also talks about the glory of Jesus in John chapter 1. Now, he's likely considering the transfiguration of, and as well the resurrection, but he talks about the glory of God. John chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word, that's Jesus Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, and the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, he became flesh and he dwelt among us. That literally means uh, tabernacled among us. And they're saying he was more than just a man. We saw him in his glorified state. He proved that he was God, both with the transfiguration and the resurrection. What's the point? The point is the disciples were awake. Had they slept, they would have missed out in likely the most miraculous experience of their life. Those who engage spiritually will behold his glory, but those who give into the flesh will only hear about it. What do I mean? The Lord, he might ask us to climb up a mountain or he might ask us to engage in this specific spiritual thing, not to punish us, but to reveal to us his glory. If we don't engage in it, we're just going to hear about it. Because I tell you right now in this church, there's people experiencing the glory of God. I know this for a fact. And I've witnessed this and I've seen transformation and I've seen change and I've seen these amazing, miraculous things happen. A changed heart, that's the most miraculous thing in the world. But those are those that aren't sleeping through it. See, when we sleep through it, we can hear about everybody's change. We can hear about everybody's transformation. We can hear about the encounters that they've had with unbelievers and the prayers that they've had for other people and these amazing things that they've experienced. But if we're not choosing to wake up and engage, we're going to miss out. And we're just going to be hearing about it and not being about it. Matthew chapter 17, verse 4. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Okay? Now, Peter is suggesting that they make these three tabernacles, but with this suggestion is the implication that there's equality amongst the three. We'll make one for Moses, we'll make one for Elijah, and we'll make one for Jesus. But he's not getting the point. He's not getting the message in Honestly, he shouldn't be speaking anyways. In Mark chapter 9 and Luke chapter 9, it says he didn't know what he was talking about. He didn't know he was just talking to talk. 
He was just talking because he thought he was supposed to say something, but it wasn't a time to speak. It was a time to listen. And that's exactly how God the Father rebukes him in the next verse. Matthew chapter 17, verse 5. While he was still speaking, while Peter was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. So we see that this bright cloud overshadows them and speaks to them concerning Jesus. What is this bright cloud? It's God the Father. Okay, This is God the Father coming and engaging in this interaction. And we see that God the Father revealed himself as a cloud or covered his glory with the cloud would be better said uh, in Exodus with the Israelites as he led them through the wilderness. He led them by cloud during the day to keep shade over them and obviously lead them and with a pillar of fire by night. So this is this is God the Father. This cloud also referred to as the Shekinah glory. That's for another study. Uh, very interesting, amazing, and how God revealed himself to Moses and the rest of the Israelites in that time period. He says again, while Peter was still speaking, God rightfully interrupted Peter. Peter was speaking when he shouldn't have been speaking. And God says, hey, no, you don't even let him finish. No, this is my time to speak. This is your time to listen. See, there's times to speak and there's times to listen. Sometimes we just need to listen and there's nothing that we should be saying. We should just be paying attention to what the Lord's trying to communicate to us. How many people can speak and listen at the same time? Raise your hand. Are you good at speaking and listening at the same time? I'm not. If you are, then you're way more gifted than I am. But when I'm speaking, I'm not listening very well, right? To listen, we got to remain quiet, but we also got to pay attention. We have to incline our ear to what the Lord is saying. Point three, incline your ear to hear. Incline your ear to hear. That's what he says. Hear him. God the Father says, listen to God the Son. Hear him. He has something important to get across to you. He has something important to speak to you. Now this both applies generally and in prayer. In prayer, well, remember, I told you from Luke's account, we see that they went up to this mountain to pray. That was the purpose of them going up the mountain, aside from the transfiguration, obviously. Now, in prayer, we often fall into this habit of just talking, just communicating with God. But it's not communicating at God, it's communicating with God. Sometimes God has something to say to you. And we're not going to hear it if we're constantly talking. It may not be audibly, it could be something he puts on your heart. But how often in your prayer time do you say, God, what do you want to say to me? I just want to hear what you have to say. He could guide you to a verse. He could, again, put something on your heart. If you're super lucky, he might just speak to you audibly. But the point is we spend so much time talking and so little time listening. Again, this applies both to prayer and in general. The Lord wants to speak to us. What we have to say to the Lord isn't as important as what he has to say to us. His words are more important than I word, our words. So how much more time should we spend listening to the Lord than speaking at the Lord? And I'm not saying don't speak to the Lord. Definitely speak to the Lord, but listen to the Lord too. Hear him. There's a time to speak and there's a time to listen. Isaiah talks about this in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4. Isaiah 50, verse 4 talks both about speaking and listening. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4 says, The Lord has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. 
Isaiah, he hits the balance. Hey, there's times where God wants me to speak. There's times where he gives me uh, the words to speak, how to speak, and when to speak. And there's other times where he's calling me to listen. And when are those times that he's calling me to listen? Well, obviously all the time, but specifically, he's talking about the morning. He says, he awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learn. This is a verse that strongly supports the fact that we should be seeking the Lord early, getting up in the morning and hearing what he has to say to us. I say, hey, he tells me things early. That's when I'm in tune. That's when I, you know, I might just have woken up, but that's when he's speaking to me. He's speaking to me early. Not that God can't speak to you at any time of the day. He absolutely can. But this supports the fact that we should be pursuing the Lord early, praying to the Lord early, getting in the word early, because that might be the moment that he wants to speak to us, just like Moses. He woke him up early. He said, get up early and come on the mountain. Get up early and come on the mountain and seek me. I want the first fruits of your day. If you give me the first fruits of your day, I'll give you my all. Just as he revealed these things to Isaiah, so too does he reveal these things to Peter with a harsh rebuke. James chapter 1 verse 19, it says, Be quick to hear, slow to speak. Listen, pay attention. What's God speaking? What's God trying to tell you? Or are we talking so much that we can't hear him? Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, he says, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased, hear him. We don't have time to go into this uh, in depth, but this phrase, this comment, this direction that God the Father makes concerning God the Son fulfills three scriptures, okay? It's Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. If you just want to write these down, we're not going to talk about them right now because we're almost out of time. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. And Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. All three of the titles and direction that are given here, God the Father uh, spoke of these things uh, in past times. So it's awesome to see God the Father solidifying God the Son and how He is indeed fulfilling Scripture. Matthew chapter 17, verse 6. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. This is interesting. It doesn't say that they trembled or fell on their faces when they saw Jesus in his transfigured state. It doesn't say that they fell on their faces when they saw Moses and Elijah, these guys that shouldn't even be around anymore. One of them was dead. It doesn't say they fell on their faces then. When did they fall on their faces? At the voice of God. God's word is what brought them to their faces. But look what happens next. Matthew chapter 17, verse 7. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. See, where the voice of the Father caused them to tremble, the voice of the Son comforted them. It's amazing. That dynamic, that support, how God the Father and God the Son work together. This is a perfect picture of unspeakable power and tender love. That's who God is, though. We should fear Him, yes, but also recognize that that He loves us. He says to Him, arise, you don't need to be afraid. Matthew chapter 17, verse 8. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Okay, so they fall on their faces. They're not looking. Last thing they saw, Moses, Elijah, Jesus, and God the Father rebuking them in a cloud. And so they fall on their face like this, and Jesus, hey, hey, arise. You don't need to be afraid. Get up. And who's left? Jesus. Moses isn't there. Elijah isn't there. God the Father isn't there. What's the point? The Lord is calling us to focus intently on him. Don't get distracted by these other things. That doesn't mean that we're not supposed to focus on God the Father. Follow the context. They look up and Jesus is the only one there. That's who we're to focus on. Fourth point, focus on Jesus. Focus on Jesus. Remember, we talked about how Moses represents the law. And we can get caught up in this religiosity, this legalism when we're so focused on the law. We're so focused on works. And we're focused, so focused on all these different things. 
What did Elijah represent? He represented the prophets. We too can get so focused on prophecy. We can get so focused on uh, what's been fulfilled and what's going to be fulfilled in end times and all these different things. Those things aren't bad, but the message here is over the law, over the prophecy, focus on Jesus. Focus on Jesus. He's to be our focus. Do you ever find yourself distracted? What about right now? What are you thinking about? Are you thinking about what you need to do after you leave here? Are you thinking about what you're going to eat after you go? The, the, the supplies you need to pick up down the mountain, that person's house that you're going to after this, or are you focused on Jesus? Now that I said it, you guys are all focused on the wrong thing. But in all sincerity, when we're spending time with the Lord and we're purposing to hear from him, we have to focus intently on him. That's what Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verses 1 and 2 says. It says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We're supposed to be locked in, fixed on him. Everything else is secondary. Matthew chapter 17, verse 9. Now, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Television to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Look what happens. They came down from the mountain. It's great to go up the mountain, but everything that goes up must come down, right? Yes, God will call us to these experiences on these mountaintops. But as we'll see here and even in real life, God brings us up on the mountaintops. Yes, to produce something in us. Yes, to reveal something to us. But he's doing that to prepare us for the valleys. The mountaintops prepare us for the valleys. Fifth point, mountaintops prepare us for valleys. He gives us those mountaintop experiences to be ready for and be prepared for the valleys that are to come. We'll see a picture of a valley uh, next week. But we know the disciples, they had a lot of difficulty to go through. Jesus, one of the reasons that he's revealing these things to Peter, James, and John, yes, they were weak. Yes, they were going to be leaders. But had they not had this confidence, had they not been able to experience this thing, their faith might have wavered, and we see it does later. But they might not have been able to endure the valleys that were to come. Jesus had to reveal this deep truth to them to give them the power, the strength, the confidence, the faith to endure the valleys that were to come. So we got to recognize when the Lord reveals revelations to us, he's likely doing that to prepare us for something to come. Uh, a little over a year ago. Um, so when I was with Patmos between terms, um, I would always have like, yeah, I'd be doing my devotions, but I'd have a book that I was studying like in depth. There's always something. I always wanted to be like engaging my mind. I wasn't teaching as much, you know, during the off season, if you will. Um, and, and, and so I wanted something to study in depth to keep to love the Lord my God with my mind. You know, just to really engage. And I was praying one morning, like the day after the term ended, and I was like, God, uh, what, what do you want me to study next? What, what, do you, what do you want me to go through next in the Bible, like, like deep? Um, and the Lord led me to Jeremiah chapter 1. Uh, and, and he didn't tell me what to go through. He talked to me about my calling. And he gave me confidence in my calling. It's like, okay, that's not what I prayed for, but okay. Fifteen minutes later, I get a text from the director of the Bible college, and he says, hey, would you mind teaching Job this semester? I'm like, hmm, okay, if that's not from the Lord, I don't know what is. It's exactly what I'm praying. The Lord, he tells me my calling first, and then he gives me the specifics. This is what you'll be studying. It was awesome. I had so much confidence. I know that I'm supposed to do this because I was just praying this, and this happened. Uh, I believed it. It lined up, and I was supposed to do it. Now, I thought I was supposed to do it just to answer my calling as a, as a, as a teacher and what God is, has called me to, but it was more than that. See, God knew what was to come. In that season last spring, my wife lost her mom. Now God was preparing me through my studies to, to, to deal with that situation. And one of the main things he hammered home to me was this. When you look at the story of Job, the only time that Job's friends were any good to him was when they were silent for those seven days and they comforted him for those seven days. Once they started opening their mouth, 
That's when they started misleading him and making up stuff that wasn't true and all these different things. And he gets angry with them because they're not helping him. They're rebuking him. The Lord, he ministered to me through that. Hey, you're you're Job's friends. You have an opportunity of how you're going to walk through this. Are you going to engage in silent consolation? Are you going to just be there to comfort your wife? Or are you going to explain to her the biblical understanding of suffering and all the logical arguments so that she has an understanding in her mind? No, her heart's crushed. It's broken. It doesn't matter what I know. I don't know what it's like to lose my mom. I know what it's like to lose my mother-in-law. So what am I supposed I'm supposed to just be there to comfort her, to be there for her. And that was the greatest wisdom that the Lord imparted to me during that time. What's the point? The Lord revealed himself specifically to me. He answered a prayer for me for a specific purpose. He brought me on the mountaintop. He, he made it so real that I knew it was from him in that moment. Exa- answered that prayer specifically but it was to give me the faith and confidence to endure through the valley. That's what the Lord so often does. Not that he'll only reveal stuff to you to get you through a valley, but often he reveals stuff to you so that we'll have the faith in him, so that we'll have the confidence in him to endure the valley. Then he says, Matthew chapter 17, verse 9, he says, tell the vision to no one. Until the Son of Man is risen. So don't talk about the transfiguration till the, to the resurrection. There's different debate about why Jesus told the disciples not to say anything. First of all, we know it was just for them. It was for those three to see the transfiguration. It wasn't for anyone else. They needed to see it for some reason. I believe it was a lack of faith. Regardless of the reason, Jesus needed them to see it. And he says, don't tell people. Why? Well, there's a good chance doesn't say, but there's a good chance that he didn't want to cause other people to stumble. Peter, James, and John, oh, they're the favorite, and they get the special treatment, and they see the transfiguration, and there's all this like special attention to them. Because that's what people would think, when in all reality, as we discussed, it was probably the former, that they struggled with faith, and they needed to see that to continue and to endure and what God had called them to. So we don't know exactly why. We do know, he says, don't talk about transfiguration until the resurrection, because many people would see the resurrection. And the transfiguration compared to the resurrection, it was just like a, uh, it was just like a taste. It's really what it was. He's telling you what's going, what's going to happen. He's going to fulfill this completely. Matthew chapter 17, verse 10. And his disciples asked him, saying, why then did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Why are the disciples asking this? Well, it's probably not Peter, James, and John specifically. You remember they came down the mountain, so it's probably the other nine because they just saw Elijah. <laughs> so they're probably not asking this. It's probably the other guys. Um, but they say, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Well, that's what the scriptures tell us. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, it says just that, that Elijah will come first before the Messiah. So they're confused. Wait a minute, wasn't Elijah supposed to come? Uh, but the Messiah is here. You're the Messiah. They're, they're struggling with their understanding and interpretation of the scriptures. Jesus explains the full context of this and what this means in verses 11 and 12. Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. When then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Jesus, he says here that Elijah is coming and has already come see other scriptures that support this. But basically what Jesus is saying is that John the Baptist, he wasn't Elijah, but he was of the same spirit of Elijah. There's a lot of connections between John the Baptist and Elijah, even the clothes that they wore with the camel fur, right? There's there's so many different things. They're both prophets in a time of darkness in, in Israel. Um, Elijah, he escapes to the wilderness. John the Baptist, he lives in the wilderness. They, they both had this like reformed, strong prophet type mentality. There's scriptures across the board that, that support the similarities of Elijah and John the Baptist. But what Jesus is saying, Elijah has come, 
meaning John the Baptist, in the spirit of Elijah, very similar, but Elijah still will come. Now, we can look at this and be like, wait, Elijah did come. So is that fulfilling that? Well, Jesus didn't say that he came twice. He said he came and he's going to come again, which leads most scholars to believe that that coming again will be fulfilled in Revelation chapter 11 that we mentioned before, that Elijah will be one of those two witnesses that will be there about halfway through the tribulation that's going to preach the gospel in power. And if you don't receive it, you're a dead man. Really interesting. Breathing fire and all these different things. Now, some say that other witness, because there's two, could be Moses. It also could be Enoch. Uh, the fact of the matter is, Revelation chapter 11 just tells us that there's two witnesses. And we know that Elijah's coming again. We can be pretty certain that Elijah will be one of them, but we don't know for sure. And we don't know who the other one will be. This is likely what Jesus is getting at. Regardless, we know Elijah will come before Jesus comes in his second coming. Now consider what Jesus just did here. He revealed himself to these three disciples on, on an amazing level. This, like I said, was probably most, one of the most spectacular events that ever occurred in history. And three guys got to witness it. They witnessed the glory of Jesus. But how did they witness the glory of Jesus? They were asked to climb a mountain. They had to follow Jesus to see his glory. He led them up the mountain. We're not going to see God's glory unless we follow him. Right? They follow him up the mountain. Not only that, they fall asleep. They had to stay awake. They had to engage their minds. They had to wake up to see the glory of God. And we know Jesus revealed his glory, not just to reveal his glory, but to build a faith in them that would give them the confidence to endure through the valley. See the Lord? He wants to reveal himself. He wants to reveal himself to every single human being. He wants his creation to go from creation to child. And that's what he desires. And as we become children of God, it's not just a one-time reveal. He wants to constantly reveal himself to us. But we have to also understand certain times it might take climbing mountains. Maybe not every time, but certain times it might. As we see here in this text, it's definitely going to take staying awake. It's going to take engaging your mind. Not that God can't reveal himself to you in dreams. He can do that. Okay, but don't use that as the excuse. Okay. It's going to take engaging our minds, but also recognize that he brings you up on the mountaintop. He reveals to you this profound truth or this profound calling because he's trying to give you the faith and confidence to endure through the valley. Maybe the Lord's revealed something to you through this. Maybe he's revealed something to you through your devotions or prayer or worship or whatever it is. Recognize, hey, that revelation is special that he wants to share with you, but also recognize it's not for nothing. There's a purpose in it. And likely that purpose is to give you the confidence and faith to endure the things that are going to come. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for what you did in this text. Transfigured, revealed, glorified. God, such an amazing thing. Jesus, I pray that you would continue to reveal yourself to us, that you would reveal yourself to every single person in this room, God. Lord, that we would be able to see your glory. And with that, Lord, we would engage our minds. We'd be awake. We'd be alert and able to witness it, knowing that you reveal things to us for specific purposes. And it's always something greater, typically, than we, than, than we first initially think. Lord, so I pray that your revelations wouldn't be for nothing, but we would see the big picture and the purpose of them. In Jesus' name, amen.